This is the Pro Football Doc Podcast with Dr. David Shaw. As a practicing orthopedic surgeon who's performed hundreds of procedures on NFL players and as the former longtime head team physician for the San Diego Chargers, Dr. Chow uses his insider knowledge to decipher injuries to a documented 95% accuracy level. He's the Sirius XM sports medical analyst and is quoted everywhere from Sports Center to NFL Live. More than 100,000 followers can't be wrong in following him on Twitter, looking for his instant insights on injuries during games. Now, Dr. David Chow, the pro football doc. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another Pro Football Doc podcast as we head towards week eight of the NFL season here. Lots and lots to talk about here and a typical great special guest this week, a little bit of a surprise here. But let's bring in our producer here, Greg Peterson. Welcome to the show, Greg. Dr. Chow, it is always great to be with you. We didn't see overly many injuries this past week in the NFL, but we certainly did see some significant ones. I think you'd agree with that. Well, yes and no. Um, I think that by the time you count them all up and by the time the trickle comes in, I'll bet you it's within one standard deviation of the norm and certainly two uh, as we go through our injury rundown. Well, they're there. They just didn't happen to Saquon Barkley. You know, of course, Matt Ryan did get injured and we'll... And the Adam Thielen one is actually the one I was thinking about the most. That was significant. Yeah, well, yeah, Adam Thielen is significant because he's a star, but I don't know that that was a very significant injury in terms of medically. I mean, his season's not over. We'll we'll get into all of that stuff. A few things to talk about before we bring in our guests and then do the uh, rundown here. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, high ankles a little bit, and we're going to talk also about the mindset of injuries and the, the, the backdrop, so to speak. What did you think of what, what stood out most to you this week on the games, Greg? Anything in particular? The fact that the, the Arizona Cardinals said, oh, David Johnson is going to play. And then, of course, if you started David Johnson on your fantasy team, well, you were let down very much so. Yeah, and we'll cover David Johnson. But I'm surprised you didn't say... Philip Rivers didn't run a sneak on the goal line there against the Titans to win. We all know that that's going to be the case. <laughs> well, you know, I actually got into a little conversation with Warren Sharp about it on Twitter, and it was fun. Uh, he was going off on, see, why don't they run the sneak, and why doesn't he call that? And I was like, yeah, maybe, but, you know, A, Philip doesn't call the plays. He said on our podcast that he's willing to run a sneak. But the other thing you have to consider there. Do you really run a sneak when Mike Pouncey is out, when your left guard, Forrest Lamp, broke his ankle and is out? And less important on a sneak, I suppose, when your left tackle hasn't been there all season, you've had a shuffle on the offensive line and other things. I don't know. I mean, it's a football decision. And uh, if everyone knows you might run a sneak, maybe it's not the time to run a sneak. I, I, I don't know. I just... I think it's easy on the outside to be critical, especially since they didn't score and they lost the game, right? It, it is what it is. But uh, let's talk first about some high ankle sprains. And I think we can talk about Tua Tagliavoa, not because, oh, he's in college, but he's projected potentially to be the number one overall pick in the NFL draft. And there's the uh, uh, tank for Tua movement, uh, et cetera. Well, I don't know if you saw, Greg, but he had high ankle surgery on his right ankle. He's already had it on his left ankle. This is an interesting occurrence. Look, I think he's going to be fine. I think he's going to come back fine. But I think it's interesting to note that this surgery that's being done in Alabama, I'm not saying it's a bad surgery. I'm not saying it shouldn't be done. I'm not saying the doctors don't know what they're doing. What I am saying is this surgery has not been adopted in other places like the NFL on a routine basis. Sure, severe high ankle sprains and ankle fracture dislocations have this, quote, tightrope type and other types of syndesmotic surgery, but not sprains that don't involve instability. 
Saquon Barkley just came back to play on Sunday, missed four weeks after his high ankle sprain that was severe enough that doctors put him in a boot and on crutches and didn't let him put any weight on it. Yet he came back in four weeks without surgery. Pat Mahomes, week one, had a left high ankle sprain, limped through the game, won the first four games of the season, re-aggravated it week five and week six, but still playing along, no surgery. Nick Bosa had it in the preseason and came back, no surgery. A.J. Green has had it for a long time now. Maybe one can argue he should have had surgery. Who knows? But did not have the surgery. Matt Ryan, and we'll cover him again later, by video as a high ankle sprain, isn't going to have this surgery. Bottom line is, I'm not being critical of the surgery. I'm just pointing out this is something in a world of NFL medicine where you're fairly aggressive, and sometimes the conservative thing to do is to do surgery as well. It really isn't routinely being done. Tua walked off the field, probably had less of a limp than Matt Ryan. Matt Ryan was put in a boot. Tua was seen getting into an ambulance or some sort of transportation, walking without a boot, and ended up with surgery the day after. Look, maybe it's the right thing. Maybe it's preventative. Maybe they can push them harder in rehab. Maybe the Alabama doctors know something the rest of the NFL doesn't know. I'm just saying it's different. Everyone heard about the national championship game where he had the other ankle fixed. It happened in the SEC championship game. And I think about five weeks later, he played in the national championship game. Maybe he wasn't 100%, but did really well, right? They won. But Greg, they did, did you not know win the that... national championship game last oh, year, by the way. They the didn't. Oh, no. never mind. It tells you how much I watch college football. But anyways, there was a lot of talk about his spectacular return. I guess my point is this. Oh, that's right. Clemson. Yeah. Uh, never mind. Bad on my bad. No, they did not. Now I remember. But in any case, you can cut that, right? No, just kidding. Don't worry about it. Uh, I can cut the... as much or as little as you want. I've got the power here. <laughs> I'm not worried about it. I, people know I don't watch college football in general. If you look at the ESPN report, and I couldn't figure out why his, he had the high ankle surgery, because people sent me video of his SEC championship game last year where he sprained his right ankle. And then later it was determined he had ankle surgery. I'm like, what he did to his right ankle wasn't even a high ankle sprain. Why is he having this surgery? Well, it turns out his right ankle was a standard low basketball type inversion sprain. And the ori original ankle injury to the left side that he had surgery on happened in the first quarter of the game. So this is in the ESPN report on, on his uh, uh, surgery. He injured his left high ankle, the SEC championship game last year in the first quarter, continued to play, then left the game after a low ankle sprain on the right side, and then had left ankle surgery. My guess is they're doing it for prophylaxis to be able to push him harder, but Typically, you don't do surgery on an ankle that you can continue to play on. Saquon Barkley couldn't play and didn't have surgery. So I'm just pointing that out. There are this what's what makes the world go round is differences. And on the record, no criticism. Just pointing out the differences in terms of what's out there. Different ways to handle different injuries. Mindset of injuries percentage. Greg, what are the chances Cam Newton wouldn't be practicing and playing this week if the Panthers and Kyle Allen were 0-4 in his absence? Oh, if the Panthers were winless in his absence, he would be out there 110% of the time. So the mindset of injuries, what percent you are, a lot of different things. It's not black and white return to play is my perspective. With Kyle Allen being 4-0 with a bye week, and from the get-go, we said Cam Newton was going to miss four to six weeks if they're waiting for him to be 100%. I'm pretty sure that Cam's in the 90s now, but he's probably not 100. And if Kyle Allen and the Panthers were 0-4 or 1-3 in his absence, I think the Panthers would say 95 rounds to 100, let's ride. But they're doing okay, so they can say, hey, you're 95, let's wait to, for you to be 100. That's what I mean about mindset. Things change. Drew Brees says he's practicing this week and wants to play and is going to try and play. He could. This is the sixth week. We said from the get-go, it's a six-week recovery and he'll be fine. But technically, this Sunday, he'll be six weeks from injury, but only five and change from the surgery. 
remember it took a couple of days to get the second, maybe third opinion and then decide on surgery and to schedule it. So this Sunday, he's under six weeks. Can he practice this week? I think so. Obviously, earlier when there was excitement that he was coming back, I said it's not happening, and it didn't. And at this point in time, he's got a chance to play this week. But here's the mindset of injury. Breeze's mindset is he's going to play, and that's what he needs to do. But the team has a different mindset. Look, if there's any chance the thumb can be re-injured or made painful with a karate chop to Breeze's right thumb, and this is not bounty gate, this is just... You're taught to strip sack the football if you get to the quarterback, right? I mean, that's what players are taught to do. If there's a chance it would hurt him or set him back, they're not going to play him. And especially tempting because what? Teddy Bridgewater and the Saints are 5-0. and And next week, the Saints have a bye. So this would give Breeze a couple more weeks. That's why I think the chances are good. They're going to play him in week 10. Week eight, week eight, Bridgewater. Week nine, by week 10, Drew Brees. And he'll make a good return. That's part of the mindset of injuries and how decisions are made. Let's look at Pat Mahomes. He's saying he wants to play. At least that's the word. And I wouldn't doubt the kid. And right now, they're, they keep saying best case scenario. What's the best case scenario, Greg, for a torn ACL? To be able to return, I would say, next year and then you know full well that they're probably not going to be 100% that next year, but two years in the future, that's when you really take off. Oh, Sensei, you're listening. Good job. In any case, my point is the best case scenario with a torn ACL is that it's a torn ACL and nothing else. No other meniscus, cartilage, other ligament damage. What's the best case scenario for a dislocated patella? It's just a dislocated patella didn't knock off a piece of cartilage, didn't have any additional damage, but you still have damage to the MPFL and the medial retinaculum. There's no tissue in the body that can be moved two to three inches out of place and you not stretch or tear something. So for people to even ask the question, is Mahomes playing next week? And give Andy Reid credit. He said that would be a stretch. (laughs) It's more than a stretch. He's not playing this week. He's not playing next week. He could in three weeks. We said a month. But the risk is, if there's risk of re-injury or long-term concern, they might go a different way. I'm just saying, there's a bye week coming in there. There's a lot that goes into these decisions. It's not black and white. And that's part of what I would call the mindset of injuries in terms of uh, what's going on here. And uh, I asked uh, Mark Dominic on Sirius, and then I asked Pat Kerwin, both former NFL GMs, if there's anywhere close to a one-third or 50% chance of resubluxation or dislocation of the patella when Mahomes returns, if there's anywhere near a three or 5% of potential long-term issue in terms of knocking off some cartilage and the onset of arthritis, if you're the GM, do you let Mahomes come back in a month? Bearing in mind, he's your young superstar and franchise guy for a dozen years. And they both said no. I don't know the numbers or percentage of chances, but I'm telling you, once a dislocated patella, it's a higher chance of re-dislocation. I don't know what the risk is of long-term damage. It's not high, but it's not zero. So I think they're going to work through quite a a number of things here. And at least the, the Chiefs have come out and confirmed the reports of good news, best case scenario. And uh, there is no significant additional damage, but that doesn't mean there isn't some damage there. So I wish the young guy the best. We've made him our beast of the week several times here on this podcast. And boy, if he comes back in two weeks, I'll do it again. (laughs) That's that would be much, much beating the odds here. Well, anyways, Greg, let's take a quick break here and we'll come back with our special guest segment on the podcast. This is the Pro Football Doc Podcast with Dr. David Schell. All right. Welcome back to the uh, second segment of the Pro Football Doc Podcast. Things happen. Uh, always a little change up. We're thrilled with our next uh, guest here. Perennial 
offensive lineman, star in the NFL, pro bowler, good friend of mine, San Diego Charger, broadcast maven, gym owner, entrepreneur. And now you can add special last minute fill-in guest. <laughs> uh, welcome to the show, Nick Hardwick. Doc, thank you so much for the time. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm pleased to fill in. Who am I filling in for? Well, actually, you're filling in for Damian Woody. Uh, and oh, we, I'll, I'll try to do my best. We feel bad. Uh, his uh, dog passed away this morning. And oh, so, uh, you know, he's dealing with kids and what have you. So we feel yes. bad for him and his kids and certainly understand. And uh, we said, all right, offensive lineman. That's who we're going with. Well, Nick, what are you doing? I figured uh, you've often gotten me last minute, and so you won't be mad at me if I called you last minute. Absolutely not. Anything for you, Doc. <laughs> Appreciate it. Well, at least you can add it to your resume. And, and, and I didn't mean it in a negative way, obviously. Oh, God, no. And it's a highlight on the resume. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but it's something on the on the resume. <laughs> Maybe a footnote. A footnote. There you, there, there you go. There you go. Um, what'd you think of, uh, this weekend's games? It's a lot of fun. You know, what's, it, it's kind of been irking me a little bit about the NFL this year. And this is the first year that I can honestly say that I've enjoyed watching college football as much as I've enjoyed watching professional football, mostly because of the way that the games are being officiated and the way that the instant replay is being handled in college football versus professional football. I think professional football is so concerned with getting every call right. In a sense, they're losing the essence of the game. And we're seeing tic-tac holding calls. We're seeing tic-tac illegal defensive contact calls, whether it's a pass interference, a holding, illegal contact. To me, there are so many calls that they are Yes, technically getting right by the language that the NFL has put in. But if you were to ask the player who the infraction was called against, a lot of times that player would say, no, nah, that wasn't a holding or no, that wasn't a pass interference. And they'd be grinning slightly as they saw the flag come out of the official's pocket, knowing that wasn't in the old school spirit of the game. The player also has a responsibility to not get held, to go up and fight for the 50-50 balls. And I think the, the NFL officiating, to me, is losing its way a touch. Yeah, and, and it's got put onto the radar screen, right, with the New Orleans thing and then the rule change. But the thing that I find most interesting about it, obviously I didn't play the game like you did, and so I don't have the same frustrations. But in terms of the calls, to me, the rules are the rules. And unless you're rewriting the rules, my question is, how did they all of a sudden change, right? I mean, when did we get into this world of, well, this is our emphasis this year, this is our emphasis this week, and things right. changing. And besides your holding examples, boy, remember the big thing last year? It was body weight of the quarterback, right? Yes. I'm not aware of any written rule change, but that all of a sudden disappeared. I mean, look, week one, Nick Foles, that was a classic body weight of the quarterback. There were several examples of that. I'm not <laughs> lobbying to bring it back. I'm just saying you didn't publicly make a change of the rule. So what changed? Right. Like it's, it's like almost a secret society. It's, it's like, well, I don't know, in baseball, if, if you're going to give the inside corner strike, let everyone know and give it to every player. And then the players can adjust right now when it yeah. sort of changes without it being stated, you know, then it doesn't make as much sense. It's more about consistency and, and players will get used to it. Look, if you're calling that strike, you'll do it. Like if you get called for a hold, you'll learn not to, but it's the consistency. And, and I think mm -hmm. on the sidelines, I've heard referees say, you got to be careful with that. I'm going to call the next time, you know, and they give you a little heads up to try and not throw the flag, right? Say, and, hey, you know, you know, the minute one player sees another player get away with something like landing on the quarterback, the Nick Foles example you gave, then it kind of opens the floodgates for the other guys to go, cool, they're not calling it. I'm going to do that. Well, I did see one called last night where he put his body weight down on the quarterback. It was during the Sunday night game. And I, I did happen to see one. And then it also seems to kind of, 
depend on which player is doing the infraction and is he notorious like clay matthews went through a little stint a couple games ago where he had like two two or three penalties in a row and it seemed to be directed it was when the rams were playing seattle and it seemed to be directed at clay matthews with the officials understanding how he plays the game in a very violent manner and judging him minus the actual infraction and so he dropped russell wilson but it wasn't a penalty based on where he hit him. He hit him in the shoulder with his shoulder, and he didn't hit him in the head with his head, but they still called Clay Matthews because he is such a violent football player. So it's a really interesting time that I think the NFL is in right now. I think, you know, when when you think about the officiating, for me, I think of a lot of the veterans and watch how they have jumped ship and gone to the media side of things. And I think a lot of it come down to, like, overcalling penalties comes down to the scrutiny that the actual officials are under themselves. And then if you wanted to take that down even further, the scrutiny that they're under is about getting it right and wrong based on how much viewership and how much attention we pay to the replays where in college football, the replays kind of come and go and the officials aren't scrutinized. You don't know their names and they just really keep the party moving. And for me, that's what I would like the NFL to get more to is just Let's keep this party moving. You're, it's going to balance itself out from one team to the other. If we miss a call here, miss a call there, make a call there, make one there, it's all going to eventually balance itself out. Yeah, and part of it is just also the, the quality of the TV broadcast, right? There are just more cameras, and there are more yeah. cameras on Sunday night football than there are the, some of the 10 a.m. games. And there's certainly That's more true. cameras in the NFL than, than some of the college games. So then you, you get all these esoteric replay angles that pointed out. But I think the other thing that, that as a fan myself, that it gets into, I never liked the fact, and I didn't mean this to be a refereeing conversation. Like you said, we're just talking. No, not almost, at all. Almost like you and I would talk if we were having lunch or something, right? I mean, it's, yes. it's kind of the same thing. I don't love the fact that New York has the final say, right? I mean, it used to be a tenant that the referees on the field made the decision. They have the their eyes and the basis now it's the focus is on replay because the focus is on replay. New York apparently can call in decisions and say, this is what you're going to call, or this is what I've seen. And I think that's what opens up the can of worms in terms of the consistency piece, the, uh, the uh, conspiracy piece and other things, because you're kind of saying, we're going to get all the calls right because we have a system and a command center in New York to get it all right. And the problem yeah. is there's a human element to all of it. So you set the bar too high. Like for, for me, as you know, Nick, I'm trying to watch, you know, eight games at 10 a.m. our time on, <laughs> yeah. on Sunday. And then people get mad. Well, didn't you see uh, on Johnson's injury? No, I didn't see it. You know, I mean, I don't know how Al Riveron or the command center in New York can keep up when there are eight games going on. It's hard enough to keep up when there's one game going on sometimes because you look at a play, you got to rewind it, look at the right angle, think about it, and the next play sometimes is off. So it's a hard job, but I agree with you. It's a position that the NFL has unfortunately put themselves in. You know, I did learn something really interesting yesterday watching the Chargers-Titans game about the runoff inside of two minutes, even with a touchdown or what was called a touchdown review. That was a really interesting kind of sequence of plays right there that I learned a lot from just kind of watching that. And even Ian Eagle made the comment. He's like, okay, Gene Steratore, seven seconds to go. They're reviewing whether it's a touchdown or a fumble right here. Is there a 10-second runoff because it had to go to review under two minutes? And I don't know if that answer was ever made very clear. So with seven yeah, seconds yeah. to go, you got a 10-second runoff. Even if they had a timeout, they couldn't do anything about it. Well, I think they could, though, Nick. And this is like what you and I have talked about before. If we're talking football scheme, I can pretend, but I can't get in the conversation. But right. if we're talking TV football, which this kind of is, right? I mean, yeah. I watch a lot of TV. You watch more football and real football than I do. But here's yes. what would happen. First of all, if you had a timeout, you could have called timeout and gotcha. saved the like 10 Brable, seconds. Like Brable did and stopped that. Brable Correct. Did. The other thing is, if it were declared a fumble, okay, 
instead if it were declared short the clock he keeps running if it were declared a fumble the ball stops on change of possession so it wouldn't have been seven seconds it would have been like 22 or whatever it was on the clock so either way that 10 second runoff probably wouldn't have made a difference in that game uh gotcha charger game at the end that's my tv football good well thank you for the clarification there look at me i'm learning every day (laughs) well i'll tell you when you're in a game right nick i mean you're in the game like you're 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 in the trenches you're not looking at big big picture things and um i'll tell you one of the times i was most flattered i mentioned on the podcast before because a guy who i think knows a lot about football doug flutie used to on occasion tap me on the shoulder what's this replay going to be you know what's the ruling going to be right i'm like that that's an ultimate compliment because Doug knows his football. Now he knows oh, yeah, yeah. seventeen thousand times more stuff than I do. But this TV side of football, because I watched a lot of it, maybe I have a, a small, small. Honestly, I I guarantee you, I've watched more football on TV than you have because you were actually playing the game and studying film that mattered. I was just watching games for fun, right? Yeah, uh, kind yeah, of, exactly. Kind of right. Yeah, and it, it yeah. is funny. There are so many more fans and experts like you who know more about the particular rules. And I, I would think overall broader strategy than the players themselves do, who are really concerned about technique, fundamentals, play execution, and you kind of lose sight of the forest for the sake of the trees. Oh, absolutely. You got to pay attention to those couple trees in front of you. That's about it, right? I mean, if you're going to do the right exactly. thing, that's 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 your that's your job and in in a lot of ways my work in football has changed i used to take care of the 53 trees in my backyard uh maybe 63 when you talk practice squad now my focus is on the 1800 trees in the forest right so there's no way i can know every injury as well as i used to know with an exam and everything else so everyone's focus uh, changes over time on that chargers titans end of the game our pal Warren Sharp, and this is not a knock on him. I love Warren Sharp, and you're one of the first guys who told me, "Yeah, hey, you got to talk to Warren Sharp. He's a good guy." So, yeah. Warren, if you are listening, yeah, we're not. No one's banging on you, but Warren has been on a kick to say Philip Rivers never wants to run a sneak, and I actually asked Philip about it when he was on the podcast this preseason. And his answer was, no, he's willing to run a sneak. But, uh, you know, in the past, you know, when you have LT and Lorenzo Neal and other players, maybe you don't want to run a sneak, but he's open to doing it. And there was some chatter last night about, well, why didn't you run a sneak, you know, on the goal line? It's the most effective play. And my response was, you know, A, Philip doesn't call the plays. And B, did you think about Mike Pouncey's out and that Forrest Lamp broke his ankle? I mean, you know, that's a big change if you're trying to run a sneak. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it is funny because I was sitting watching the game with my seven-year-old son, and right when they get down to the one-yard line or it was ruled with Austin Eckler being down that they were inside the one-yard line, he goes, run a quarterback sneak. And I go, well, wouldn't that be the obvious thing to do? And, yes, I would like to see them run the quarterback sneak because that is the one play that has never been stopped. It's just stopped being called. So for me, I'm thinking run the quarterback sneak or give a fullback dive. I mean, you've got six, eight inches to go. And Phillip Rivers, by the way, for people out there who don't understand, he is a massive man. I mean, he is all of 235 pounds, six foot six. He is a Hulk. You stand, and I didn't ever appreciate it when I was playing next to him, but I since got to work out with him at a new slimmer size 230 pounds he was way bigger and way stronger than me and i would have loved to have seen him run a quarterback sneak and lean his big body on there and i i really don't think doc i can't recall a time that since tearing his acl in that 2007 division game against the indianapolis colts that he's run too many quarterback sneaks if at all So I think it became a thing with Norv Turner that we never called it. And then it just has since carried on. So I don't know what the thought process behind not letting that big man sneak the ball is. But to me, inside the one yard line, just give it to Phillip right up the gut. And teams 
seem to now know that we don't have to put our bodies right on top of the center. We can play a regular run play here and have some luck stopping it. But to your point, I mean, if you can't gain a yard, if you can't gain a half yard, and Anthony Lynn said this after the game, we don't deserve to win. But when you look at the Chargers situation that they're in right now, and I know Phillip's getting a lot of scrutiny. He's 37 years old, last year of his contract with the Chargers. But you look at the the situation that they find themselves in with the offensive line, and you, you have to ask yourself, how could you expect Phillip Rivers to have anything that resembles upper echelon performances? I mean, you've got two tackles who – Coming into the season, yeah, sure, Sam Tevy was expected to start, but it, how many other teams is he starting on? You got Trent Scott at the left tackle who had nine games under his belt, not nine starts, nine games. He had one start before this season. The Russell Okun thing, it, you know, it, it completely threw the Chargers off course at the left tackle position. Dan Feeney at the left guard spot. They were giving Forrest Lamp the opportunity to start over the top of him. Forrest couldn't beat him out. So Dan moves down when Mike gets hurt. Mike Schofield couldn't stick with the Broncos. So you've essentially got an offensive line who is backups at best on most NFL teams. And that's your starting offensive line. And then you mentioned Forrest Lamp has to come in at left guard because Dan has to bump down to center for Mike Pouncey. He breaks his ankle. Then all of a sudden, you got Scott Questenberry in at the center position. So you've got an offensive line who I would imagine, and I could see it in Phillip yesterday, he looks really uneasy back there. And this is the first time in a long time that I can remember Phillip actually seeing the rush. And a quarterback is supposed to feel the rush, not see the rush. He's supposed to keep his eyes downfield. I saw Phillip yesterday actually see the rush for the first time in forever. And that just lets you know how almost unsafe he feels. Yeah, and the Chargers, you know, once again, every week this season, they've lost somebody. And, and you know, maybe the most fantastic thing is with that line, Phillip Rivers still has that 200-plus start quarterback starting streak still alive, and he's still healthy. Um, <laughs> he, has a know, rugged, he has one rugged, tough dude. No, no question. And this brings up another point not Charger-centric talk, but just in general, that, that we've talked about at other points in time, how, like, we all know how the salary cap affects backups and lack of practice and preseason time. You've talked about how the backups and the players coming into the league out of college, because of the college systems, they're not running pro-style systems, that it's a learning curve. And guys coming in the league don't have a chance to learn NFL pass blocking or blocking schemes as much anymore based on the, uh, the, the offenses that colleges run. And I think this is an instance when you see this where the lack of experience, especially with the backups, it's harder to develop. And, that, and you can say it better than I can, but that's really your concept that I'm stealing. Yeah, I, I think the concept is, and especially when you've got kind of this transition period that the NFL's in, and especially, and, and you could look at the Chargers and you could look at the Patriots, although they're an outlier with the system that they run and the ability that they've got to be able to groom offensive linemen within that system. Very rare to be able to do that. But you can use the Chargers as the example where you've got a lot of kids coming in from college who don't have the time and they don't have the reps in the old school drop back five and seven step drop quarterback who's a pocket quarterback passer to then ask them to come to a very traditional system and to say, okay, here's what we're going to ask of you on a routine basis. And so you're asking them to shift mindsets, shift skill sets, and it's a really tough transition. And, and most coaches will tell you the last thing to come together for any football team in the all through training camp is the pass protection unit. It is a wildly, and I know for a lot of people out there, it's like, yeah, it just looks like two fat guys kind of running into one another and all you got to do is stand in front of the other guy. It is wildly, wildly technical. And I'm talking about 
boxing level technique where you're you're wanting to punch with your right hand when your right foot is striking the ground and if your feet and your hands aren't synced up and your body's not in a great position to be able to do it these defensive linemen are absolute animals and they are going to make you look foolish and if you don't have the time or you didn't come from the program where you were doing a lot of seven step drops and kind of old school traditional football systems. And now you're coming to, and the team is projecting you from a college system to a professional system, like the chargers run a traditional pro style system, I guess I should say with a immobile quarterback, you don't know if you're going to have a guy who's going to be able to do that or not. And I think that's a very difficult projection to make. Got it. Got it. And, and it makes sense. And, and and we always say injuries beget injuries, right? Especially on the offensive line. It's always been my theory. Look, uh, as you know, the, uh, the uh, starter, the uh, longtime stalwart pro bowler in the NFL is a guy who's dominating the block and always moving his feet. Whereas a guy that may not have all the talent sometimes has to hunker down to hold his block, right? Yeah. And plant his feet. And then that's when you get rolled up on and that's when more things happen, right? And then, you know, you already have the shuffle at left tackle for the Chargers. Then there goes Pouncey. But it's not just Pouncey. Now your left guard goes to center and a new left guard comes in. And, and yeah. you know, the whole left side of the line is different than before. And it and it dominoes. And it dominoes on, on what's uh, next to you too. I mean, if you know someone is solid next to you you can count on the help but when you don't know they're solid it, it changes a lot there's a lot of dominoes and and that's kind of what we've been trying to do with the injury index i don't know if you ever had a chance to look at it we're trying to grade run offenses and run defenses for example last week the giants against the patriots uh, i said well their run offense you know was uh downgraded something but not horrible and people are like, what are you talking about? Gallman and Saquon weren't playing last week. Why is the run offense terrible? You know, and the, why is the Giants offense not a C or a D? Because they didn't have both their pass catchers, Sterling Sharp and Evan Ingram, the two top pass catchers, and they didn't have their two top running backs, Wayne Gallman and, and Saquon Barkley. And my answer was, well, for the most part, their offensive line is intact. That's why they're not a C or a D grade, yes. right? I mean, yes. there's other parts to the equation. Yeah, a great offensive line can really help out not having a starting running back in tow. And there, there's so much nuance in the offensive line play. And we're talking about communication first off coming up to the line and not having to clearly define the blocking responsibilities. Like when we were really cranking with LT at running back, we had to give grunts. And in fact, I had guys like Chris Dillman next to me who would get mad if I actually gave him a call and a number associated with the call because he thought we were tipping our hand to the defensive line that they were going to know what kind of block we were going to be doing on them. And so they would look at me at times and smack me and say, hey, don't make a call here, please. And so when you start doing the house of cards or the dominoes along the offensive line and one guy goes out, then communication really has to ramp up, which gives the defensive line and the linebackers an indication of what's coming. They understand the language that offensive linemen speak. So a lot of times they understand, hey, that's a run call. This is a pass call. So you're giving them a little tip there. But then it comes down to trust and then the nuances in the run game. We're talking about putting two feet right next to one another, not tripping over one another. And I like to use the analogy because everyone's seen the movie 300 where the Spartans put their shields right next to one another in a very perfect line, shoulder to shoulder, hip to hip, knee to knee, foot to foot. And then their shields are thrusting together forward at the exact same time. And they are surging back the Persians in Sparta or in the uh, movie 300. That's how we like to view blocking and double teams on the offensive line. When you have shields that are not coming next to one another and shoulders and hips and knees and feet that aren't tied together, then you're leaking a lot of power and you got a defensive lineman splitting the gap, the run holes aren't there, and it's an absolute mess. And that kind of thing happens the more backups that you get along the starting offensive line because you haven't had the reps together. You don't know the guy's tendencies. He's guessing where you want him to step. And it's very difficult to get any kind of effective run blocking when you start having two and three backups that are filling the starters roles. Well, what I, my takeaway from that is obviously 
I always knew the game was complex, but it's even more complex than that. And certainly it's a great description analogy. My other takeaway is I need to get out more often from the kids because if it's not a kid's movie, look, I don't even think I've even heard of the movie you just said, much less seen it. So, <laughs> oh, I must man. be in a hole here, which, which no, I probably am with, with the kids. No, 300 is an old one, Doc. That's that's about the Spartans uh-huh. in the Gates of Fire. It's an awesome, it's an awesome, awesome movie. Yeah, go check that one out. <laughs> I'll have to uh, put it on the list. That's how much of a of a hole I'm in. I, I don't even know what you're talking about there, but, <laughs> but I see the imagery. Yes, uh, nonetheless, like you know, some of these award shows that come on, and like my wife sometimes watches. I'm like, I'll watch for 15 minutes. I go, I haven't recognized the name yet. <laughs> I have no idea who the. Uh, you know, whatever the Academy yeah. Awards or this or that or the whatever awards, like, I don't even know who any of these people are yeah. anyways. So I mean, that's Van, about, maybe, uh, maybe, yeah, maybe Vampirina and, you know, <laughs> and uh, Paw Patrol or something. Well, there you go. Anyways, well, thank you so much for taking the time. A stellar job on the uh, last minute uh, call up here. Thank you for making the time for us. We'll obviously reschedule uh, Damian Woody for another time, but I don't think you disappointed one bit. I mean, I think that was awesome and fun. And, of course, we could talk for a whole hour as always. So maybe we'll have you back on. Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, Anything else that you want to update people on what you're up to there before we go? Oh, I got a podcast myself called Finding Center with Nick Hardwick. I talk to a lot of scientists, doctors, psychologists, and it's been really interesting for me. I've had – a Harvard cardiologist on recently. I had a New York Times bestselling author, David Epstein, who wrote the new book. It's a number one New York Times bestseller. It's called Range, Why Generalists Specialize in a Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. I'm having a guy come on tomorrow to talk about breath work. So find that podcast, check it out if you're interested in human performance, psychology neuroscience. I mean, we cover it all and it's been a ton of fun for me. So that's what we got going on on this end. Well, that sounds great. Well, obviously people who didn't know you already now know that a dumb football player is the antithesis of what Nick Hardwick is. (laughs) Congratulations on all that stuff there. And uh, thank you for coming on. And we'll take a quick break before we come back with the final segment three with the injury rundown for the week. More now with Dr. David Chow, the pro football doc. All right, special thanks to Nick Hardwick for coming in on short notice and on pinch hitting. And, and gosh, I, I feel for Damian Woody, we're really his kids, right? I mean, the dog passing away is not a good thing. So we'll have him on another time. Uh, best wishes out to uh, his family there. So let's do our injury rundown here and we'll start with the quarterbacks and and run through matt ryan the falcons have said it's an ankle sprain they won't confirm or deny high ankle sprain by video very clear high ankle sprain i don't think it's a long-term deal i don't think it's horrible is it impossible that matt ryan plays next week no but i think the most likely scenario week nine is a buy that he'll skip week eight get week nine and then play week 10. So it may be Matt Schaub this week for the Falcons. Mitch Trubisky played, didn't play particularly well, whether it was the Saints defense or Rust. But let me tell you, he really, really protected that shoulder, the left shoulder that he dislocated. He did return to play like we thought, but with the bigger brace on, and he really was favoring it. You could tell, like he didn't want to fall on it. He didn't want to do other things. So hopefully he'll get through that this week and and have a better performance next week. We've kind of talked about the next three guys in our first segment. Drew Brees, the likelihood is sit one more week, take the bye, and come back week 10. Week 9 is the bye. Cam Newton, as long as Kyle Allen's rolling good, they'll really wait to that 100% number. And Patrick Mahomes, we've, we've covered some plus minus a month, and then hopefully he can play without symptoms. Let's move on to running backs. Josh uh, Jacobs hurt his shoulder early but finished the game. David Johnson, you talked about, look, he played three plays. His first carry was tentative, then sat between his ankle and his back. I think he gets next week off after this week's okey-doke. Number one, Chase Edmonds did pretty darn well. 
Number two, they brought in Jay Ajayi and Spencer Ware for tryouts and looksies. I'd be careful here. David Johnson might sit another week at this point in time. Alvin Kamara didn't play. And here the bye comes into play again. With the bye the following week, unless Kerry, unless Alvin Kamara is really good, he might get next week off too to really get all that time to get healthy for after the bye. Carry on Johnson. I looked at his injury. Apparently it's to his right knee. There are some bodies in the way, so I don't see anything specific. But Adam Schefter has word that uh, it's week to week. Week to week means closer to a month than one week. So Carrion Johnson might have a modest to extended absence. Uh, Schefter's basically never wrong with his information. He gets it from the source. So I think you have to prepare Carrion Johnson to miss into November. How deep into November is the question. Let's go to some wide receivers here. Um, Adam Thielen, obviously the big question here. He had a brilliant catch for a touchdown and then strained his right hamstring. Was seen running on the sidelines, trying to get back into the game. I don't doubt Adam when he says, I'm playing next week. But I wonder at the time if he realized it was a Thursday game when he was saying it. They play Thursday against the Redskins, host the Redskins. That is a quick turnaround. Thursdays are not harder in terms of in-game injuries. The injuries in-game aren't more common on Thursdays. But the recovery from Sunday is much harder. I don't doubt Adam Thielen. Maybe this is where a Sunday to Sunday that he would play. But this is a pretty tight timeline here. So it's iffy at best. And the last thing you want to do is aggravate it and make it worse. So... The Vikings might be without feeling. I think the Packers will continue to be without Devontae Adams. That turf toe, as we said before, is going to likely take him into November. Sterling Shepard with a concussion. Very unpredictable. Who can and can't come back. Christian Kirk, I think, has a chance to come back from his high ankle sprain. Marquise Brown with the ankle, right ankle, left foot, missed this week. Think he has a chance to come back next week. I'd say AJ Green for the first time has a realistic chance to play in week eight, but that's far from guaranteed as well. The news on Deshaun Jackson is not so good. Head coach has said, look, uh, he may be dealing with this all season and he's not practicing early this week. Core muscle injury, I think that's where he's headed still and potential surgery there, we'll see. Six week recovery timeline. Will Fuller also has a hamstring, only played three plays. Word is, is his hamstring is a little more significant, so he's looking at a multi-week absence. And that makes sense for a speed guy like he is. And I also don't think Tyrell Williams is that close right now. Plantar fasciitis, many times you can get an injection and play through. He couldn't. So I think he's quite a bit up in the air. Oh, and not to backtrack, but... Uh, on running backs, Chris Thompson and his toe. I think it's like a turf toe, still questionable. And Saquon. Saquon played well, but escaped re-injury. There was one play that I tweeted out where he got his right ankle caught, but due to the rain, I think he got it out, and it slipped out, so that's good news for him. Did not seem to have a re-aggravation. Offensive line injuries continue. The Cowboys... Got away with playing Tyron Smith and Lael Collins. I don't think either one was anywhere near 100%. They both were uncharacteristic. There were several holding calls, sacks given up, and pressures given up from the outside. But that makes sense. The Cowboys have a bye week this next week. It was all hands on deck, everyone, to beat the division rival Eagles in a home game. And now they all have two weeks to rest to get better. So hopefully they'll come back healthier. A number of defensive injuries. Darius Slay out again with his hamstring. Jonathan Joseph, Darius Slay with the Lions. Joseph with the Texans with the hamstring. And I think there was a trade executed because the Texans are short cornerbacks. Bradley Roby with a hamstring. Jimmy Smith is maybe on the verge of coming back from his MCL injury. Number one corner for the Ravens. Melvin Ingram might be getting close with his hamstring and bringing up our poor chargers here. They lost Forrest Lamp to a broken ankle. They lost Mike Pouncey recently before that. Left tackle Russell Okung is on his way back and practicing. But boy, every single week, the chargers lose someone 
it continues to be bad luck there. Malik Hooker is getting close for the Colts after his knee scope. Eli Apple, foot slipped out just in time to avoid an ACL tear. Good for him. Pernell McPhee, not so lucky. Apparently a triceps tear and likely will have surgery and his season is over. Robert Quinn, Leighton Vanderesh both left the Sunday night game. But with the Cowboys by Quinn's ribs and Leighton Vanderesh's neck, I think they'll both be fine. I don't believe Vanderesh's neck issue, looking at video, is related to his the injury from college that was discussed at the combines, etc. So I think there might be some good news on Leighton Vanderesh. The bye week will help him. And quite honestly, what a luxury it is, Greg, to have Sean Lee come in as your backup. <laughs> he looked pretty good too. That's a Pretty good deal for the Cowboys there. Oh, absolutely. Not many teams can say that at any position. And who would have thought without Devontae Adams, you know, uh, Geronimo Allison with some home field advantage with the home game, got cleared last minute. Marquez Valdez-Scantling had two catches for like 140 yards or something. That's crazy. And uh, Aaron Rodgers, your guy, six touchdowns, five pass touchdowns without Devontae Adams. And wow. one of them was to a guy that I covered back when I was in college at UW Oshkosh from Division Three UW-Whitewater, Jake Kumaro. So that made me very happy. <laughs> did, did you have uh, Rodgers in, in fantasy or DFS? I'm actually not much of a fantasy guy. I'm more of a gambler personally, but I was all aboard the Packers laying the points against the Raiders. That was never a sweat. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Any other questions or issues that we haven't covered here? I know that we're getting a lot of non-football questions about Zion Williamson, if you have any thoughts on that, since he's going to miss the first six to eight weeks of the regular season. Uh, why don't people tweet at me some stuff? I didn't even see it. Man. My my hands are full with NFL football. The Tua stuff I only saw because people tweet at me. And uh, look, Greg, Greg, I'm so out of it Like with watching other sports between family, work, kids, and other things. That uh, Friday night, I was at a birthday party with my wife, and there was a restaurant and in the corner of the bar there was a the baseball game was on and some guys were walking watching and I walked by and looked up and it was like the Yankees and Astros were playing and I was like huh I really missed something I didn't realize the World Series already started that's what went through my mind because in my mind the Astros are still a National League team that's how I fit up <laughs> you know it, I caught it I mean it wasn't a long thought I didn't say it out loud so no one laughed at me but I walked by I was like Oh, I didn't know the World Series. Yankees, Astros. I was like, oh wait, Astros are still are now American League. Uh, any case, so that leaves us with uh, the Beast of the Week. I'm gonna give the Beast of the Week to Saquon Barkley. Oh yeah. I mean, he had a pretty significant high ankle sprain. And okay, did he beat estimates? I'll say he beat estimates. I said four to six weeks. He returned at four weeks, and he looked good. He was cutting hard, and he avoided reaggravation. Good for him because I think we would all have loved four weeks when he first was out with crutches and a boot and non-weight bearing. Good for him. He did it. And he did it without surgery too. So we'll make our beast of the week, Saquon Barkley. I mean, he's obviously a beast anyways, but for his injury, come back there. And that'll do it for this week's Pro Football Doc podcast. Follow us on, uh, follow, Pro, follow Pro Football Doc on Facebook. I don't know what that does, but I guess it's like it or something. I don't know. I guess it's like it on yep, Facebook. Yep, like it on Facebook. And uh, we'll uh, talk to you all next week.